All right, good morning, everyone. So wonderful to see you. So wonderful to be here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Stephen. Privileged to serve as a leader here at Riverside Community Church with this wonderful group of other leaders, and of course, all of you as well. Um, just something on our Holiday Bible Club it is free. And it's free because of your generosity as a church. But what an opportunity for you to maybe invite your neighbor or your neighbor's kids, someone at school. Uh, this is a real opportunity to uh, see the kingdom come and more people come to see Jesus for who he is. But now, before I climb into my preach this morning, we've got one more video, which is also something exciting that is coming up. So please have a look. Hey everyone, earlier this year we shared with you that as leaders we recognize that God is shaking His church and He is calling us to a better and deeper way of doing discipleship. You see, Jesus didn't just say, come to church, He said, follow me. And so how do we move from church being a place where we consume to a place where we are equipped as His disciples? And so our next step we want to introduce to you is the idea of equip modules. The big idea is to take one big area of discipleship at a time and equip in such a way that not only have we learned stuff with our minds, but we have begun incorporating it into our lifestyles as followers of Jesus. So each module will begin with an equip evening where everyone is invited for an initial evening of teaching and getting together. And then following that, we will go into our life groups and smaller groups of community where over the course of the following weeks, you'll be resourced to grow in and be equipped in this area of discipleship. And I am so excited to introduce our first equip module. And that is a module designed to equip you and grow your own ability to read the Bible for all it's worth. As Christians, we can have a strange relationship with our Bibles. We know it's God's word and we know it should be front and center. But sometimes we struggle because we don't understand what we're reading or we have every intention to read it, but we get distracted. Or if you're honest, maybe you found the Bible boring, or sometimes we come across things we don't like, and as strange as it sounds, sometimes we can even worship the Bible like it's an idol. Yet Jesus says, my words are life. The psalmist says, your words give light and understanding. And Paul says that the scriptures are God-breathed. And so the goal of this Bible reading equip is to teach us and to grow us and give us space in our communities to learn and grow practically together in reading and understanding God's amazing word. We will be launching with an equip evening on Wednesday the 18th of May for a night of teaching and equipping and inspiration in this important area of reading the Bible. And every single one of you are invited, whether you are in a life group or not, please come along to this event. Following that, you will be resourced to continue your equipping journey in smaller groups. For those of you who aren't in a life group, you will have an opportunity to either join one or to get a few friends and family together into an equipped group. And this is so important because the pattern for growing and learning to be a disciple of Jesus has always been to do this in community. So whether you're a brand new Christian, a seasoned Christian, or even if you're still checking the things of Jesus out, I want to invite you on this journey because this means that each of us will be growing in our engagement with God's Word and His life. And that means more of God in us and more of God through us. What a handsome guy. 
So God is still building His church and God is doing great things in us and through us. And so, yes, we have a full service. And so some extra good news for you this morning is that for that reason, my sermon will be a little bit shorter this morning as well. But going into today's message, you know, there are special roles that we look to special people to play in our society. And to illustrate where I'm going with that, not only are you thinking of moms, but, but let's illustrate thinking about the medical field and thinking about those who we look to to help us in our health, specifically doctors. Now, I, you know, for about five seconds thought about becoming a doctor, but my marks were good, but not good enough. And so if you want to go into medicine, your marks need to be amazing, but you also need to be committed to a bazillion years of studying and practice. And the point being, when you and I are in a weak and vulnerable place and we're needing some medical attention, we want to know that we have the best in front of us. Not only is that true when it comes to our doctors and the medical field, but almost all aspects of life. Think about it. If you want to build a house you don't just sit on PowerPoint and put out the plans. You're going to get an architect, someone who's studied, someone who has an experience in this area, and you're going to trust them. You're also going to get to the point where instead of trying to build a house yourself out of Lego blocks, you're going to get a real experienced builder who's kind of going to come and do that for you. And the same is even true in the arts. When we come to the movies that we choose to watch and the songs we choose to listen to and the books we choose to read, we are bringing ourselves to people who are mediating great stories and great emotions and great worlds beyond our wildest imaginations as we read these things. Now, in the case of music, as an example, I've got some experience. I was playing in the worship team this morning. And so I consider myself a, a, an average to a good musician. But I still look up to some incredible musicians who are going to lead me, who are going to inspire me, and who are going to stretch me and just bring the world of the arts into my heart. Now, there are some areas that I've got zero experience, like building. My wife will tell you every time I try and fix something, I spend more money fixing what I've broken on top of the thing that was already broken. So this is kind of how the world works. And for the most part, that's actually quite okay. The problem is when we bring that kind of mindset into the church environment. And in our imaginations, we've got these super professional people. And, you know, they've got access to the God space and the God stuff. And like me and music, yes, maybe uh, I, I've you know, walked a bit of a road. I think I, I can uh, uh, engage with God a little bit. But still, at the end of the day, I'm just a small person. And, and there are these real professional Christians out there. Some of you are like, well, I've got, I've got nothing to bring. There's, there's nothing of me and God that I can offer to anybody else. And so I'm just going to rock up here and I'm going to trust the people who kind of occupy this space up front because somehow the God stuff has got to come through those people to me. And while we will acknowledge that there is some truth to that, I believe that when we look at the, the church the same way we look at the world, 
expecting that the professional people will bring what they can bring to me, the non-professional person, I believe we make a mistake. For those of you who were here last week, I love it when my dad preaches here at Riverside, not only because I either get a break or I've got something else, but man, I just know that you guys are getting to know him. He loves preaching here, but he really challenged us when it comes to how we think about leadership in the space of the church and that we make a big mistake when we think that whether it's my own thoughts as a leader or your collective thoughts, that this all rises and falls on one person and they're the person that all of us look to to sort everything out. And Moses learned that lesson the hard way. And when leadership was multiplied and when responsibilities were taken up, we saw that not only was Moses in a better space, but Israel was in a better space. And that is true when we apply that in our churches. And so that was a bit of a leadership boot camp. But today we're going to take that thought even one step further. So please would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at these verses this morning. And so read with me Exodus 19 verses 1 onwards. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So basically what has happened is it's been just over two months since they've left Egypt, and so much has gone down. So much has happened. It's kind of been this kind of this action movie, and they come and they park off here at this mountain which is actually where it all started. This is where it started at the beginning of the book of Exodus with Moses, who was in a sense in exile. And he was the shepherd who had the calling on his life, but he never knew how and when this was going to unfold. And he comes to this very mountain and he engages the presence of God. And God reveals his personal name to Moses and the mission that he's calling Moses to and the purposes that he has for the people of Israel. And so now they've been through this entire journey of being freed from slavery in Egypt and they've circled back now to this mountain. Now this is a very interesting chapter and I want to actually say right up front that this is an incredibly important chapter. But for those of you who have ever tried to do one of those kind of read the Bible in a year reading plans, you start in the book of Genesis and there's a whole lot of stories you know. You get to the book of Exodus and once again, it's stories you know, but they're action-packed stories and there's a lot of drama. And then as you get to Exodus chapter 19, it's like somebody slams on the brakes. And from Exodus 20, we start getting all of these laws. By the way, the Israelites are going to be camped out here at this mountain for about one full calendar year. And so as you're reading through your Bible plan, we get to Exodus 20, 10 commandments. Okay, cool. I know those commandments. And then we get to all of these strange laws. And these laws continue throughout the rest of Exodus, throughout the entire next book of Leviticus, into the book of Numbers. And at that point, normally you start paging through your Bible reading plan and finding something in the book of Psalms or something in one of the Gospels. Because what on earth do we do with these laws? And so we've got the, the action of the first 18 chapters. 
Then we've got all of these laws from Exodus 20 onwards and sandwiched in the middle is Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus chapter 19, today's message is so important because it gives us the framework for the laws. It gives us the why behind the laws. It reminds us of God behind the laws and God's purposes for Israel behind the laws. And if that is missed, we get to these laws and it just becomes a list of do's and don'ts. But when we understand the why, and when we understand how God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel in Exodus chapter 19, suddenly a whole lot of stuff starts to make sense. So let's continue reading from there. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, up the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Remember, Jacob was a real guy whose name was changed to Israel. And so they became known as the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob or the descendants of Israel. So here's what Moses is to say. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. When he's talking about how I carried you on eagles' wings, he's referring to how God came in and he confronted the evil powers of Pharaoh and of Egypt and the dark spiritual powers behind this whole empire. And he brought these plagues upon Egypt as an act of judgment. And then he released God's people miraculously and powerfully. How he provided for them and brought them through the sea, destroying the Egyptian army. And why is God at this point in time saying, just remember what I've done for you? You've got to remember, we go, oh, Israel, we know it's that little piece of land up there in the Mediterranean. Or we go, oh, in the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel. At this point in time, they're just a bunch of immigrants walking through the deserts. They're not a, a, an established nation yet. Yes, they've got the shared lineage, but they are not on their land. And so what God is needing to do in them, he's needing to form them into this new people. And so they've just come out of generations of slavery. And we know that instead of being worshipers of the one true God, they became worshipers of the gods of the Egyptians. That is all they know and that is all they knew. These gods and their life of slavery. And so God comes in and he frees them and they're like, who is this new God? We don't know if we can trust this new God. You know, so many kind of movies have worked out in this way. Imagine someone who's a victim of human trafficking or just something dark and sinister and then a, a kind of a big muscle-bound bald guy comes in and I know immediately you're thinking of me. Whereas I'm thinking of Craig or maybe Bruce Willis or Jason Statham or someone along those kinds of lines. So this big guy comes in and he beats up all the bad guys, frees the victim of all of this horrible slavery, and then now we're on the run. 
And if you can imagine the person who's been a victim of slavery, that's all they've known. And they're like, listen, I don't know if I can trust this person yet. Have we just swapped a bunch of bad guys for another bad guy? And so God is needing to remind them of who He is. And so you yourselves have seen what I have done. You yourselves have seen that though slavery is all you know, I confronted evil on your behalf and I defeated evil on your behalf. And now I am wanting to do something amazing in your life. And not only does he say, you yourselves have seen how I freed you, but he says this, I've carried you out on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. That is so important. God's not just busting into Egypt, letting these people go and say, wow, you're free now. A couple of weeks ago, I did a wedding and it was just one of those like days in mid-30s. And what the couple wanted to have happen is when I kind of said, you know, please uh, uh, stand and congratulate Mr. and Mrs., the new husband and wife, uh, they wanted to release these butterflies into the crowd. And so everyone stands and please congratulate Mr. and Mrs. And they open up these boxes filled with hundreds of butterflies and like one or two fly away. (laughs) That's not what God's doing here with these people. It's like setting a goldfish free in the ocean, knowing it's not going to last very long. He's saying the opposite of slavery isn't Freedom, you're free, go and do whatever you want. God knows that when we go and do whatever we want, the things that we want, when we start living those out, become our new pharaohs. And so the opposite of slavery is not go and do whatever you want definition of, slave, of freedom. The opposite of slavery is living a life under a new king. A king who made you, a king who loves you, a king who did everything to free you, but a king who knows how he's made you. A king who knows what human flourishing looks like. The plans that he has for himself and humanity living and working together. And so that means the the way God says it's here, he's saying, I've brought you to myself. And so God says in the next verse, in verse five, he says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, then dot, dot, dot. Let's go back to those dot, dot, dots in a second. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then we're going to get to the parts here. So why is this God talking about obey me fully? That doesn't sound like freedom. You're just giving us a whole bunch of new laws, which feels like a whole new prison cell to us. Often Christianity is described like this straight jacket. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. Now, sometimes, of course, that is abused. But what's going on here? What I think the tone of this chapter is about and the tone of following Jesus is about is that it's never about following the rules. It's about trusting the God that we worship. Let me illustrate. 
See, for a husband or a wife, not to look for intimacy outside of a marriage, it's not about following the rules. It's not like there's this rule, no, you must only have intimacy in the marriage, and if you obey that rule, well, you get a gold star. No, it's about trusting that this is good for our relationship. It's about trusting my spouse. It's about trusting that this is the way marriages thrive. And this is how I experience true freedom within the boundaries of these, yes, these boundaries and these rules and these things that I'm going to obey, not for the sake of getting 10 out of 10, but for the sake of the freedom I can experience in my marriage. And so God says, if you obey me fully and if you keep my covenant. So what is the covenant that God's speaking about? Well, these are all of these verses that we skip over. These are all of these strange laws that we fast pace through that we don't really read because we don't fully understand. And just for some some perspective on some of these strange laws, we're going to be picking up on that next week. But I mentioned to you earlier that what's going on here is that God is forming a nation from day zero. And this nation doesn't have a pre-existing way of being a nation. And God is wanting to say to them, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. So let's frame this. Here's how this is going to work. And if we look at these laws, we're going to see moral laws. We're going to see laws that govern the the, the worship of God. Here's what worship looks like for us. There's going to be a whole lot of civil laws. Because a nation needs civil laws, right? But at the end of the day, what God is saying is, here's what I want for you. Here are the boundaries of our relationship, the terms of the covenants. This is how we're going to do this together. This is how I'm going to be among you. This is how you're going to represent me to the nations uniquely around me. So let's continue reading. If you obey me fully and keep my covenants then, and here's the purpose of these laws. Then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you, corporate, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the why. God's not saying, well, I'm your new master. You had Pharaoh, now you got me. You got a whole bunch of rules. And if you follow these rules, things will go okay. If you don't follow these rules, sorry for you. He's saying, I I want you to be for me. I I want you to be my treasured possession. I want people to see you and to know that I am a good God. One of the descriptions here is, I want you to be a holy nation. Now, holy is one of those words we stick into our songs and we we sing that word and, and we talk about, you know, Christians being holy and God being holy, but we don't always understand what that means in its briefest sense. Holiness is being set apart for something or someone. My old pastor used to say, the most holy thing in your home is your toothbrush. Because it is set apart for you. No one else is to use it and you're not going to use it to scrub any other parts of your body like your armpits. 
right? It's a holy item. So when we're holy, don't think strange-looking holy people who live in caves. Think that we are set apart for God's purposes. And now to look back at how this maybe works out in marriage. You see, the idea here in marriage, when we think about these boundaries and we think about the points of the boundaries, the idea isn't, okay, babe, you're mine now. You just need to look good. You need to obey what I say, and maybe I won't smack you down. The idea of this and the idea of marriage is I choose to treasure you and I choose to love you and you alone. And I choose to do whatever it takes that you and I flourish and I will be committed to you above all things. That is the why of marriage. And that is the why behind this. And so when God says, I want you to be a holy nation, and this very strange phrase, which is maybe new for some of us, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Kind of everything that I've said up to this point in time is, that's not me turning into a robot. That's (laughs) everything up to this point in time is an introduction really to the main point, and that is this. What does it mean for Israel? What does it mean for Riverside to be a kingdom of priests? So what is a priest? Well, in in these times and even in subsequent times, priests in Israel and the priests in the other religions of the time, it was like, like I was talking about earlier. We've got these, you know, the high priests of medicine. They the ones who mediate health to me. They the professionals I'm the pleb. And then we import that into the church world. Oh, the priests, they're the holy ones. They're the ones with special access to God. They're the ones with a special ear to God. And I'm just poor old me. And so if I want to experience God's stuff, well, I go to the priests because the God stuff is going to come through them. They're special. They can be in the presence of God and they're going to mediate God to me. Now, some forms of Christianity still have priests and without getting too deep into this, once again, well, they can do certain things that I can't do because they're holy, I'm not. They're going to mediate God to me because they're the holy ones. And God says, That's not my goal for you. I don't want a kingdom with priests. I want a kingdom of priests. This is so unique. God is turning everything onto its head here. God is shaking this up. I want everyone to be a priest. Now, this happened thousands of years ago. And can I tell you something? God hasn't changed his mind. We think about Moses. Oh, wow. He, he's the holy one. He gets to go up the mountain. He gets to be in God's presence, his unveiled presence. Moses gets to see God's glory. Moses gets to be in the cloud at the top of the mountain with God. And that's amazing for Moses. And that's an interesting story about Moses because that's history. 
Moses goes up and what does he experience when he experiences the presence of God? Well, he's in a storm. He experiences a mighty wind. He experiences fire. But God is not done. God is not leaving things here. So what happens when the church was birthed after Jesus was crucified, resurrected from the dead and ascended back up to heaven at the right hand of the Father? Well, all of his disciples, well, they're in a room and there's about this many people in there. And what happens? There's a storm in the room. There's a mighty wind and there's fire. But it's not just for one or two holy ones. This flame rests on every single one of Jesus' disciples. I think that the writer of the book of Acts wants us to think about Moses. But what he's trying to communicate there is that all of a sudden, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we're all invited to be the holy ones. We're all invited to be the priests. We're all invited to live in the line of Moses. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 describes us, the church. He says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal, think kingly. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Does that language not sound familiar to you? And this design of God is not for a Moses. It's not just for a Stephen or some leaders or even for the nation of geographic Israel. But this vision of God is for all of his people, every single one of us. That what is true for Moses in Exodus 19 becomes true for every single believer. So let's talk about some of these implications because this is just a vague concept right now. And so I want to give you three. And the first one is this. God's presence is about priesthood. Now, when you hear the word priesthood, please don't picture a dude dressed, dressed like a, a Jedi, you know, throwing around some incense. I want you to think about this idea that you and I are called to experience God's presence and represent Him to the world. That you and I get to directly enter into the presence of God. That invitation is there for all of us. You see, often we go, oh, wow, Moses. Moses went up the hill and experienced such a unique thing. I wish I had what Moses experienced. Dare I say, Moses wishes he has what we can experience. Let me tell you why. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. Speaking to a church, speaking to us, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Quoting, if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sights were so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Are you sure you want to be Moses? 
but you have come to Mount Zion. Oh, Stephen, where is that? Can we go to the heavenly Jerusalem? The city of the living God. Okay, where is this place? No, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. The book of Galatians calls the church the new Jerusalem. Whose names are written in heaven, that is you. You have come to God. Why? Because God indwells his church. The judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, we have come also to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, a new engagement with God, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Moses wishes that getting into the presence of God was the way you and I get to engage the presence of God. So not only is the presence of God about priesthood, that is inviting all of us to that. Obedience is about priesthood. Remember verse five, if you obey me fully and live up to the terms of our covenants, Stephen, that doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound like priesthood. But let's think about this. When it comes to the commands of Jesus, when it comes to the way of Jesus, I believe that the pattern still stands. The why for these people here in Exodus 19 was that they would become, by their engagement with God and their obedience with God, they would experience His presence among them and they would be this nation of priests. And in the same way, by us following Jesus, by us obeying Jesus. It's not about the laws themselves, but by submitting ourselves to the way of Jesus, we are submitting ourselves to be formed into priests. We are submitting ourselves to a training program, a shaping program. We are trusting God's ways. And God is going to shape us and form us, not because we're good or naughty boys and girls, but because He's going to shape us to represent Him well to the world around us. So obedience is about our priesthood. And finally, church is about our priesthood. Just to remind you that verse that we read earlier, 1 Peter 2 verses 9, this is the church. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And here's how we read that. Oh, me. I'm a royal priesthood. You know, yesterday my, one of my sons played a soccer tournament. And that kind of thinking is kind of like me saying, hey, boy, you're a soccer player. And we're going to go to the soccer tournament and then he runs off and plays on his own. No. Yes, you're going to practice on your own and you're going to work on your skills, but you're also going to be at practice. But then you're going to bring that all together by being on this team. And that's what it truly means to live out being a soccer player. And so even grammatically, when we come to this verse in English, we've only got you and you. You plural, you singular. If I could add some text to speak to this. But all y'all, all y'all are a chosen people. All y'all are royal. All y'all are a priesthood. 
This whole idea of church is about being this combination, this body, this priesthood of all believers. And like that video said that we watched a few minutes ago, Jesus didn't say, come to church. He says, I'm building my church. And so if we're on the team, we've got to show up. We've got to be at practice. We've got to be on the team. But it's not about you. It's about all y'all. Sorry to any Americans out there that I'm just butchering this all up here. Now, how does all of this work? You know, the biggest difference between Exodus 19 and May 2022 is Jesus. See, Israel failed to live up to the terms of the covenants. Even the best of Israel's leaders failed to live up to the terms of the covenants. The way covenants worked in these ancient times sounds pretty gruesome, especially to our modern sensitivities, is that this was a common way of engaging in a formal relationship with somebody, a business relationship. And what they would do is they would take an animal, split it into two, and basically by entering a covenant, this is more than a handshake. This is more than a contract. Basically they're saying, if either one of us fail the terms of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to us. God starts his covenants with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, God and Abraham walk through. Well, sorry, rather God himself. Abraham's in a deep sleep, but God himself walks through these divided animals. Basically saying, according to this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to us. But guess who failed? Was it God? No. So guess who should have paid the price for failing to fulfill the covenant? Us. So what did God do? The New Testament says that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. So God said, in light of your failure, instead of me making you pay, I am so committed to making this work, I'm going to pay. And what happened to those animals, it's going to happen to me. So God himself not only fulfilled his half of the covenant, he fulfilled our half of the covenant in Jesus. And so now what we have in Jesus is a truer and better Moses. The book of Hebrews is all about this. And so this is what 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is this? The man, Jesus Christ. And so every single one of us gets to access directly the presence of God, not based on your holiness, not based on your ability to fulfill the covenants, but based on the fact that we are united with the one who is the Holy One, who did fulfill both sides of the terms of the covenants. And because you and I, when we trust Jesus, we're covered by His righteousness, His life, His blood. Hebrews says a few verses earlier that we get to stand with confidence, not with our knees knocking like the Israelites in Exodus 19. 
As sacrilegious as this sounds, because of Jesus, we can approach the most holy of holies with confidence. Not arrogance, but with confidence in Jesus. No other mediator, not Stephen, no author, no someone else. You get to access the full presence of God. And so we add this idea of the fact that each and every single one of us can experience this priestly role and we can access the presence of God and we start asking this question, okay, cool, once again, that's great. I can do this. I don't need anybody else. But the vision for God, this whole y'all, y'all thing, is that it is not it's only half true that because I don't need another mediator, I can go straight to God in Jesus Christ. That part is true. The second half where we say, therefore I don't need anybody else is not true. Because the way this is supposed to work is when I access God in Jesus Christ, fulfilling my priestly calling. And when each and every single one of you access God in Jesus Christ, fulfilling your priestly calling. It's not that I don't need you. I don't need you to access Jesus, but I need what God is doing in you and through you. We need one another. And this is when the church comes alive. And so I want to pray for us. And I know this is not one of those sermons where you've got like, here's three things you can go and do. But I'm really praying that you're heeding the invitation to step into the space of you don't need God mediated through me to you. You can approach the presence of God directly. And when you do that, I need what God is going to do in your life. Every single one in this room needs what God is going to do in your life. And in doing that, God will shape us. As we experience the presence of God as priests, as we follow Jesus as priests and as we be this royal priesthood, this corporate people, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. the church as priests. And so let's pray that we fulfill our calling as this Riverside Community Church. Father, I too have fallen guilty of thinking that what Moses had, that's unique and that's a one-time thing. But in Acts 2, the fire and the wind came down upon each and every single one of us. And we get to experience without fear the presence of God. Lord, I pray that something in our spirit would be stirred, that we take this calling seriously. This is invitation to every single one of us in this room and listening online. And God, I pray that this would be reframed in our minds. The joy of being a holy priesthood. The joy of coming into your presence. The joy of following Jesus. The joy of representing Jesus well to this world and to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the joy of being your people. And just like Israel was to show the nations 
this great God who frees them and loves them. So we are to show the nations who our great God is. And we are all to be part of this royal priesthood. God, just as your presence became so tangible to these people and to your early church, I pray that your presence would become increasingly tangible to us. Not because we are after experiences, but we want to know you. And this world needs to see you. We want to be formed by you, empowered by you, and shaped by you. This is not about our collective efforts, but how we submit to you and what you do in and through us. So would you do that, Jesus? And we ask confidently because of your word and because of this fact that we have a new covenant with Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. That even when we are small in faith, you are faithful and you will fulfill all you have committed to do. You invite us to be part of that. God, would this not be something that ends in two minutes time as we end our formal time together? But rather we walk into this, we step into this as individuals and as a church. We pray this, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.